0: Thank you, and you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. And as you're turning to John chapter 8, I want to talk to you this morning about James Smith. James Smith was born in Huntsville, Alabama, in the 50s. He graduated from Madisonville County High School in Danielsville, Georgia. He then graduated from Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama with a degree in human relations. Later, he graduated from the Southeast Baptist Theological Seminary with a degree in theology. In 1982, he married his wife, Jerry Lynn. They have two children together, a son, Josh, and a daughter, Jamie. Both of them are married, and Josh and his wife have a daughter, Mateo who is the apple of his, or her, excuse me, her grandfather's eye, as many of you can relate um, to to that. Um, Just thinking about James, um, politically he is conservative, meaning that he was not a big fan of the last administration and is somewhat cautiously optimistic about this administration. He is also, unfortunately, an Auburn Tiger fan. Um, I say unfortunately there. Um, But vocationally, he has been a pastor. He has worked with the North American Mission Board, and now he is a director of missions for a Baptist association um, in Alabama. He is very missions-minded. He leads missions throughout his association and throughout his state. He is also involved with the Isaiah 58 ministry, which um, provides women uh, who are leaving prison with clothing and meets their needs in that way. He is also focused on international missions. He actually supports through his association a church that meets in Loja, Ecuador. So he is a a part of the work in Ecuador just like we are. So all in all, James is a grateful husband. He is a loving father. He is a proud grandfather. He is um, a passionate missions director. And I say all of this Introducing this man to you in order to make this confession. I have no idea who James Smith is. Uh, meaning, on Friday, I picked up my phone and I said, Siri, what is the number one man's name in uh, America? And she repeated, James Smith. So I went on Facebook and I searched James Smith. I found a guy who I shared three friends with, and I spent 15 minutes stalking his page and writing down all the information that I just shared with you. I mean, it feels kind of bad or weird to say that, um, but we all do it if you're on Facebook, so you've done it. But So here, here I am on his page stalking and sharing that information, and let me just say this. Um, Social psychologists are going to say that I do not know Jim, that I only know about Jim. They're going to use the terms impersonal knowledge um, versus personal knowledge. And so what we have to understand is impersonal knowledge can be used any time we know someone as an acquaintance. Um, Maybe we would recognize them. We know facts or we know truths about them, but we don't know them. It means that I could see James in the airport and I could walk up to James and I could say, hey, James, how you doing? Man, how is Jerry Lynn doing? How is Josh? How is Jamie? How is Mateo? When was the last time you went to Ecuador? I mean, I could know, I could I would know enough facts about James to really freak him out. Um, you know, I mean, I would really mess him up. And of course, chances are he would look at me and say, do I know you? That would probably be the question that would come to his mind, which really then begs the question, what does it mean to actually know someone? So what does it mean to know someone? According to psychology, personal knowledge is to know information that is particularly intimate as well as private that exists within a ongoing relationship. So that is personal knowledge requires an ongoing relationship. I can unpack details, external details about James's life, but I don't know him and he doesn't know me. And the reason I'm choosing to begin this way this morning is because I believe we live in a context, especially where we live in the Bible Belt, where most of the people that we come in contact with, most of the people that are in our circles would identify themselves as Christian. So we live in a context where most people that we have in our circles would identify themselves as Christians. Yet the concern would be that many of those only have an impersonal knowledge of Jesus and not a personal knowledge of him. In fact, just think about this. Jesus stated the possibility of that in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says this, on that day, many, many, he didn't say few, he said many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And that makes me pause and go, man, how... Have we ever done that? Have we ever prophesied in his name or cast out demons or mighty works? And then he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So the question is, what must we do? What must we do? And I, I believe the answer is this. We must behold the glory of God in the face of Christ in, in a way do that until we are able to make a life decision based on that glory. So we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, and then in beholding that glory, we are going to have to make a life decision, whether he is going to be our Lord and Savior or whether we're going to walk away from him. It is a decision that every person who encounters him must Make which leads us to this eight week series that we are about to jump into, kind of going through the Gospel of John, but more specifically, going through eight I am statements that um, are found in this Gospel. Now think about this Gospel of John. John Owen, the great Puritan, said this about the Gospel of John. He said, The revelation made of Christ in this blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, and deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. What better preparation can there be for our future enjoyment of the glory of Christ than in constant contemplation of that glory and the revelation that is made in the gospel. So basically he says this, what better preparation for our future um, time in the presence of Christ than to spend our time now immersed in his glory. And we do so in the gospel of John. No book in the Bible has a more sustained focus on the glory of Christ than the gospel of John. And it's safe to say as we behold Jesus, as we truly behold him, as we gaze upon him, not just as we check off boxes concerning him, not just as we regurgitate facts that we remember from a flannel board when we were children, but when we truly see him for who he is, when we truly respond to him for who he is, when that happens, according to the word of God, when that happens, when we continue to behold him in that way, we will be transformed More and more into his image. Which is what I want for my life. It's what I want for your life. It's what I want for the life of this, his church. That we would behold the glory of God. And the face of Christ. We wouldn't be able to get enough of that. And then as we do that. God would make us more and more. Conform us more and more. Into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the end game here. We, We want to behold him. So this morning. We begin a new series and as we do, I'm I'm praying. I've been praying that if any are here and their knowledge of Christ is an impersonal knowledge, I am praying that something supernatural would happen in their hearts and lives over the next eight weeks. That as they behold this picture of who Christ is, that Christ, his spirit, would change their hearts and they would go from an impersonal knowledge of him to a personal knowledge of him. And that's what I'm praying for. So We're going to jump in together this morning. We're going to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, the absolutely glorious face of Christ. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to begin in verse 48 of John chapter 8, read all the way through verse 59 together, and then just unpack this picture of this statement of Christ. So beginning at verse 48, it says this, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, and I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death." The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I Am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, and we come before your word. We come before Lord our Savior, the one who, who told um, those around him that he is the one, oh God, that you glorify, that you glorify your son. And Father, today we want to behold that glory. We want to stare intently at what this means that Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. We want to know what it means, Father. We want to know what implications it has on our lives. We want to know how it gives us hope, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but forever. So show us that today, we pray. Oh, how we need you. Show us, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So this morning we're going to begin this picture, this I Am series, portraits of Jesus. And let me just give a brief summary of where we are in scripture. John chapter 8 begins with Pharisees and scribes bringing a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. They were using her in order to trap him. But this encounter ends with Jesus telling this woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What beautiful words those are. Then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Basically declaring that these um, who he's speaking to were living in darkness. Jesus then tells them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And they begin to ask, who are you? Or who are you making yourself out to be? And Just think about that question. They ask it two different times, but they weren't really interested in who he was. They were only interested in who he claimed to be, so that they could have a reason to accuse him and kill him. Just let this sink in. Not for one moment did it, it, did it ever occur to them that Jesus' claims might be true. Not for one moment did it ever occur to him that the one standing or them, that the one standing in front of them was the son of. Of God, So this conversation eventually led to Abraham, to the one who was their father. And they assumed what many people assume even today, that salvation comes through a physical birth and not necessarily a spiritual rebirth. They thought they were okay because they were Jews under the, the banner of Abraham. Like many people today, they're, they're saved because their grandparents are saved or because their parents are saved or because they have Christianity in their family. Family heritage, therefore they are saved. Yet to those, even today, 2,000 years removed, Jesus looks at them and says, You must be born again. Even to this day, you must be born again. And then, of course, Jesus answers them and gives them kind of a two-fold answer. First, in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad which begs the question since Abraham lived 2000 years before Christ how did Abraham see Jesus's day and the answer is the same way according to Hebrews 11 that Abraham saw the future city by faith so what Jesus says is that Abraham saw his day saw the time when Jesus would be alive and reigning saw the time of his rule and his glory Abraham saw it he rejoiced in it and of course this statement has has led commentators to search all over um, scripture looking for an event that jesus is referring to when did abraham see this they say maybe abraham saw the birth of christ when he waited so long and saw his own son be be born in a time where it shouldn't have happened or maybe when he was sacrificing his son or about to sacrifice his son he was was given a picture of what christ would do but here's the answer. We have no idea what event Jesus was talking about because Jesus doesn't tell us. So Jesus doesn't tell us what event he is talking about. But here's what we need to understand and need to need to think about. From this, his hearers begin to understand where he's going, so they press in. And then Jesus continues. And he says, and they say this: Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus says in verse. 58, after they said, You know Abraham? You're not even 50. You know Abraham? And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones. There it is, brothers and sisters, the clearest, most exalted claim of Jesus in the whole Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh, I am the God of Israel, I am the I way, or excuse me, the, the I am of Exodus 3 and verse 14. Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. No, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Meaning there was a point in time that Abraham was born, that Abraham came into being. And even before that time, Jesus is saying, I was and I am. I was and I am. And I tell you, I hear this all the time, and maybe you do, people who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. We hear that all the time. Jesus never claimed to be God. And I can assure you that the Pharisees and the the Jews who heard Jesus that day would disagree with that statement. In fact, we are told that they picked up stones. It delighted the Pharisees when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It delighted them because they said, here's our chance to kill him. He just claimed to be God. Here is our chance. Let's jump on it. They knew very clearly what Jesus was saying. So let me just say this. I know we are a long way into this message, and I still have not gotten to the first point yet. Don't let that scare you too bad. I will eventually let you out of here. So um, don't you worry. So what I want to do this morning is I want us, in this time that we have left, to unpack three amazing realities of what I am means To us, some 2,000 years removed from this. For all the things that Jesus claimed throughout his time on earth, this one was elevated above them all. So what does this mean for us? Here we go. First truth. It means that he, Jesus, is the ever-existing one. It means that he is the ever-existing one. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 because this is exactly where um, the people, the scribes and Pharisees, the Jews, this is exactly where their mind would have went when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has this encounter um, on the the mount, a burning bush, the angel of the Lord, and most times when we hear that phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament is a um, reference to a pre-incarnate picture of of Christ, So we, we get this picture, and um, Moses is having this conversation. God is making very clear what he's calling Moses to do. And then in verse 13, it says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I love this picture because I am means, hear this, it means I am who I am, not I am who you think I am. Listen, God is making it very clear. God is saying, I'm not just who you think I am. Because think about all of the claims, all of the thoughts that we have concerning God. And let me just tell you, every thought that you and I have concerning God in our own natural mind falls well short of who he is. Falls well short of who this God is. Is so what God is saying is, I am who I am, not who you think I am, or not who you just define me to be. And in this moment, God is not just declaring his existence, he's declaring his self existence or a particular kind of existence that he is the self existent one. Meaning, and you've heard this before, that God does not depend upon us for his existence, we depend upon him for ours. Meaning, get this if we didn't exist. God would still be God. If God didn't exist, um, neither would we. So just think about that reality. And it, it's not just that we exist and God has always existed. It's that God's existence, God's, his, his character are determined by him and therefore they cannot change. So who determined God's existence? God. Who determines God's character? God. God has always And will always be who he is. And that's really, really, really good news for us. It's really good news that we serve a God who can't change. And maybe you don't think that's good news, but let me tell you, I think it's really good news that 10,000 years from now, God won't look at us and say, you know what, I'm kind of sick and tired of you guys. Uh, I I think I could probably spend and and maybe use the next 100,000 years and just send you all to hell, and then maybe eventually I'll miss you again. I'm so thankful that God doesn't change. (laughs) And that we know from a million years from now, he'll still be who he is today. And that is good news for us. But just think about this. The difference between God's existence is ours. is like comparing the sun with a, a flickering candle. It's like comparing the ocean with a raindrop. It's like comparing the universe with this room that we're, we're in. All of creation can pass away in an instant. But God necessarily exist forever he must exist he necessarily exists forever think with me to a time if you can in your mind before the earth before the sun before the moon before the universe when there was just God it's hard to do but just think about that just God now I'm going to do something I did a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night now think about a time before God existed Okay, some of you are starting to get the right answer. You're going, because there has never been a time where God did not exist. We cannot think of a time where God was not. So here's the thing. When we ask God who he is, when we when we come before God and we say, God, how did you get to be who you are? God says, I am who I am. And we fall on our knees and we say, yes, you are Yes, you are. In other words, no one or nothing gave him his power. There is no force or there is no influence upon his character or power except the influence and force that comes from him. He is altogether absolutely I am. Jesus is the ever-existing one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is the picture of who Jesus is. All things were made through him and for him. And according to Colossians 1, he holds all things together. It's good news for us. He's the ever-existing one. But then secondly, he is the ever-present one. He's the ever-present one. Now look with me back at verse 10 through 12. So God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He being God said, but I will be with you. And just stop for a second and think about how God deals with Moses. God tells Moses, I'm going to use you and you're going to lead the people. And Moses looks at God and says, who am I? And I love what God doesn't do. God doesn't reinforce Moses with a bunch of positive thoughts. God doesn't say, Moses, you've underestimated your own talent. Please stop underestimating yourself. In the same way, God doesn't say, okay, Moses, close your eyes and repeat after me. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people will like me. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, now Moses, close your eyes and envision yourself walking right in front of Pharaoh and now envision yourself taking him down. You can do it. No, God doesn't do any of that. In fact, God doesn't even answer Moses' question. Moses says, who am I? And God answers, I will be with you. Think about what God's doing here. Listen to what God's doing. God is saying, Moses, it's not about who you are. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about your mouth. It's not about your past. It's not about any of that in this moment. It is about me and the fact that I am promising to be with you. Let that sink in for us this morning. It's not about us. It's about the one who is with us. In fact, Jesus echoes these same words. At the end of his departure in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Jesus is not just the ever living one. He's the ever present one. He is the one who is ever present with his people. Just think about what that means for us. He is the one. The one who promises to be with us is the one who has authority in heaven and on earth. Oh, that we would ask God to open our eyes to what that really means for us. What that really means, that we have one who is ever-present with us, who has all authority over everything. Jesus has all authority over every enemy in our lives. He has all authority over every circumstance, every disease, every calamity, every futility, everything we'll ever walk through. He has authority over, and he has promised to be with us to the end. He is ever-present with us. Therefore, child of God, don't you ever, ever say, I'm just alone. I don't have anybody with me. In that moment, you are calling God a liar, and he is not a liar. He is with us. He is with you. There might be times that you have to say, Lord, I can't see you. I can't feel you. I don't, I don't understand what's going on, but God, I am I am right now declaring your word that you have not left me. You have not forsaken me. You are here, and this is holy ground. So therefore, I'm going to take off my shoes and I'm going to treat this as holy ground. And I'm going to stay right here, God, in the midst of what seems like loneliness on my part. And I'm going to worship you. Oh, to God that we would do that. Oh, to God that we would have those moments. He is the ever-present one, which leads us to the last truth. He is the ever-saving one. He's the ever-saving one. Look at verses 16 and 17 now of Exodus 3. Now God comes on the scene and he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land, and it ends this way, flowing with milk and honey. So God says, I will bring you out of your affliction, And it is here that the name of God, I am, reaches its full meaning. For this is where we see that in this name, God shows himself to be permanently existent, to be permanently present, but also to be a God who is permanently redeeming his people. He is permanently saving us. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, a few chapters over, and listen to verse 2. Verse 2 God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. So I appeared to them as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. But hear this. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What an interesting statement especially in light of the fact that this is being said in Exodus and in the book of Genesis some 100 times the name Yahweh is mentioned in the book of Genesis. So the question becomes, what does he mean? And what he means is this. God had revealed himself in the book of Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, the almighty God. God had supernaturally shown his power to them over nature, over history, over people, over events, yet the patriarchs did not know him as I am. Why? And I think it becomes really clear here because for the first time, as seen in the book of Exodus, God is going to redeem, deliver his people. So for the first time, God was going to redeem his people, to deliver his people. In fact, God continues. Look at verse um, 6 chapter 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you will know that I am the Lord your God. This whole picture of redemption. Think about this. Follow with me here. The book of Exodus would show us the first great act of redemption by God. For God would, by his power, by his righteous right hand, would deliver his people out of being slaves to Egypt, Egypt, which represents, of course, the world. But let me just say this. Thanks be to God. This would not be God's last picture of redemption. For when we get to the New Testament, we realize that in the New Testament, Jesus is still the ever-saving one. For it, it, We are told that Joseph and Mary will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. We are told by Jesus' own mouth, I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to seek and to, to save that which was lost. This is the picture of Jesus, but it gets even better. For we fast forward some 2,000 years, and we are gathered together in this room today still declaring that he is the ever-saving one. He's still declaring that. He's still saving. Aren't we glad that God's saving power didn't stop 2,000 years ago? Aren't we glad that God is still saving today and it's hope for me, it's hope for my children, it's hope, Lord willing, for my grandchildren and yours, it's the hope that we have that he is still saving. That's good news, amen? It's good news for all of us. So let me just say this, over the next seven weeks, we are going to see this Reality of Christ's identity over and over and over again. And every week, more light is going to be um, shined upon who he is. More light is introduced. And we're going to see just the picture, the glorious picture of of who he is. But, But let me say this this morning. Maybe you're here. And you would say this morning, well, I feel like I'm in darkness. Over the next eight weeks, you're going to hear him say, I am the light. Maybe you would say, i I'm thirsty and you're going to hear him say, I am the living water. Maybe you're here and you say, I feel lost. And you're going to hear him say, I am the way. You're going to say, maybe you say, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And he's going to say, you're going to hear him say, I am the truth. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're under a curse of death. And you're going to hear him say, I am the life. Maybe you're here and you feel uncared for. You're going to hear him say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd always cares for his sheep. Even the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Maybe you're here and you say, I just need a fresh start. You're going to hear him say, I am the door. I am the door. You come into me. I will give you all the fresh start you need. Maybe you are here and you are crushed by the consequences of sin in your life and your family. And you're going to hear him say, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe you're here and you say, "I I just need spiritual nutrients. I need to understand what I can do through him. And you're going to hear him say, I am the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You might in this moment feel so sinful. But let me tell you this, he is so graceful. You might in this moment feel so devastatingly weak, but let me tell you this He is forever strong. He is forever, ever strong. Whatever you're not, whatever you need, whatever you're not getting from others, He is. And He will forever be. And, and let me just say this because He is, it takes the pressure off of us to have to be. You don't have to be. Why? Because He is. You don't have to because He is. In fact, we encounter God when we come to the end of ourselves. And when we do that, He is there and He is I am. A couple weeks ago I ended when we talked about this on a Wednesday night I ended with this statement. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me this same statement. Just say with me, I am not, but I know I am. I am not, but I know I am. Oh, there is great truth and great glory in that fact. Amen? Amen. But let me end this way. If you can turn back to John chapter 8 because there is a bad note that I think it's possible and I think we need to end here. That in John chapter 8, verse 59, it says that they picked up stones to throw at him and then hear these words. But Jesus hid himself. And went out of the temple. And I'm not taking lightly where we're going to be over the next few weeks. Because let me just say this. The Bible makes it very, very clear. That to those who look in the face of Christ. To those who behold his glory. And to those who walk away unchanged. To those who refuse to receive him for who he is eventually he begins to hide himself from them. And instead of their souls and their lives and their hearts being filled up with his light and his life, their souls remain in darkness. And the darkness isn't him. The darkness is in us. And I want to beg us as we begin this time Don't, don't come in and have this encounter. Don't come in as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and just leave here going, well, that might be true. Jesus died for this truth. He, he gave his life for this and for us. Oh, to God that we would find ourselves here today understanding that everything that we need, he is. He will forever be. There's life in that. May we seek that. May may we never hear those words that he hid himself because of our unbelief, because of our rejection, because of our refusal to receive him for who he is. Oh, today, may we receive him for who he is. Before Abraham was, he is. He is the I am. I am not, but I know I am. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray together. I'm going to call Brother Frank up, the musicians up. We're going to enter into a time of invitation. Let's pray together. Father, oh God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus, who you are. That you are the great I am. That you are God. We thank you that we, thank you that we have a God that we can't fully define on a bumper sticker. We have a God that that makes us scratch our heads in wonder and awe. That's who our God is. But yet we can know you. Lord, we come before you today, Jesus, declaring that you are God. In fact, it's been stated very clearly time and time again, if we are not willing to say that Jesus is God, then we are not willing to come to him on his terms. So help us, God, just to see the glory of of God, the glory of our Father love of our Father in the face of Christ, and know that He is the ever-existent One from the beginning with God. He is the ever-present One. Not just present with us in our good times, but present with us always. And He is the ever-saving One. Lord, your, Your Word says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost those who come. Lord, you don't just save us halfway. You don't just save us almost all the way. Jesus, you save us to the fullest. And we rejoice in that. And we pray over anyone who is in this room or who will be in this room that doesn't know you. That today or over the next seven weeks, God, moving forward, that you would grip their hearts with you. With you, God, with a picture of who you are. And Lord, your word says For those who believe and those who receive, they will be children of God. We want to believe, but also we want to receive you, Jesus, for who you are. You are God. Help us to start there. Help us to rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.